This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. In golf, there's special vocabulary for different shots. You may know of a slice or a hook shot, but there is also a shot that is not everything you hope for, but it will do. This is called by older women golfers, the son-in-law. Not everything you hope for, but it will do. Golf has nothing to do with Jane Caro's book, The Mother. Welcome, Jane. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Jan. That's a very interesting opening. (laughs) Well, the mother in this book is Miriam Franklin. Her older daughter, Fiona, has married Liam. What does Miriam think of this son-in-law? Oh, she's very fond of him. Uh, He and Fiona went out for a long time before they actually got married, so she knows him very well and she's very comfortable with him. I think she takes him for granted a bit. You know, he's quiet, he's quiet, he's reserved, and so he doesn't impinge on her very much, but she knows that he makes Fiona happy. And she also thinks of Fiona, her oldest daughter, as a robust and even-tempered. They've got a child, Molly, Who is Molly going to be the flower girl for? Uh, Alison, Fiona's younger sister, who is the more difficult daughter as far as Miriam is concerned. She's always been a little bit needier, a bit clingy, a bit whingy, but I think it's a common experience that people find their second child a little bit more difficult to handle than their first, and certainly Miriam fits that mould. She feels guilty about it. She feels she wasn't as good a mother as she should have been to Alison, and she overcompensates. Well, Alison even has a meltdown on the eve of her wedding, and how did Miriam cope with this? Phlegmatically, I think we'd have to say. She's kind of used to meltdowns. She gets irritated by them. Uh, from Alison, but she's learned stay cool, stay calm, stay in the moment and hold your irritation inside you. Miriam again sees this as, oh, it's Alison being difficult again. So what does she know about her new son-in-law, Nick Carruthers? Very little. It's been a whirlwind romance. Um, He has literally swept Ali off her feet, but Miriam's not bothered. In fact, she's deeply relieved. I mean, he's very tall. He's very charming. He's very good looking. You know, he's, and he's a vet, you know, next best thing to a doctor. Like what's not to like? And also he's going to take Ali off her hands. Now she's going to be somebody else's responsibility. And so Miriam and Pete, her husband, Pete, can um, get on with enjoying their lives again. They've done their parenting. You know, they're a bit like, she's a bit like Mrs. Bennett, you know, both daughters married and off my hands. Hallelujah. Where did the newlyweds set up home? Well, they moved to a country town a couple of hours north of Sydney, Dungog. Uh, This is because Nick is a vet and he is mostly a large animal vet. She knows she has to give the, the newlyweds some room, but there's not much communication between her daughter and herself now. Now, it's always been difficult for Miriam. She's she's often felt that oh, she's boring old mum, you know, if she rings up and things like that. You know, Ali's always been sort of gadding about and doing things and, you know, doesn't want to talk to her mother, can't be bothered, takes her for granted a bit. So she's not too bothered about it at first. But then particularly, of course, after Miriam's husband, Pete, very suddenly dies of a a massive aneurysm, 
Miriam needs to have her support from both daughters, not just from Fiona, but also from Ali. And so she keeps trying to reach out to her, but Ali often doesn't pick the phone up. And Miriam has this dread that Ali sees the number comes up and it's got mum, you know, as it does on your phone, and she deliberately doesn't pick up. And this makes her feel so awful and so grief-stricken as well as the grief she's already feeling that she becomes hesitant to ring, hesitant they do, they do spend a weekend together. There are moments where they do get together, but it's always slightly fraught. And Miriam spends her whole time feeling like she has this uncanny knack of saying just the wrong thing at just the wrong time. Miriam had really worked hard building up her own real estate business and she was really worried with Alison moving away from Sydney because she left a very good job as an economist at Deloitte. So what is she doing down at this little country town? Before they go, Ali reassures them, her and Pete and says, it's okay, I'm going to do a PhD at Newcastle University. Of course, that doesn't happen. And Miriam's a bit surprised. But again, she doesn't want to push because whenever she does, she gets rebuffed. And then she realises that actually Ali's working voluntarily. No, she's not getting paid as a receptionist at the vet practice. And she's Mm -hmm. astonished. And then when she comes to actually see Ali and spend the weekend with her, she noticed that Ali's dressing completely differently, wears no makeup, wearing baggy clothes. Now, she's early days of pregnancy, so she explains it by saying, you know, I'm uncomfortable, I just want, I don't want to be in type things. And you know, Miriam accepts it, it sounds logical, but there's more and more worrying things. They go out to have a drink with a friend of um, Ali's, the only friend she's made, who's a gay guy, you know, flamboyantly, utterly out there gay, but Nick is still... Uh, very resistant to Jeremy being around. Jeremy doesn't like Nick at all. The phone rings while they're out having a drink um, and it's Nick and he's sort of checking up on Ali and Miriam starts to feel more and more uneasy and her attempts to rationalise what's going on become flimsier and flimsier, even to herself. Well, there's the birth of grandson Teddy and after the birth, Nick is concerned about Ali. Why is Nick concerned? Well, he says that he's worried about Ali's mental health. In fact, he asks Miriam, has she ever had any mental health issues in the past? So she's thrown off balance by Ali's behaviour and she starts to worry, is this some sort of postnatal depression or possibly even worse, postnatal psychosis? Miriam had a friend 30 years ago who actually had a bout of that and it sort of haunted her. So she starts to get a bit paranoid and Nick builds the idea that there's something wrong with Ali, that she's not mentally well. And um, indeed, she gets goes to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist recommends and the baby health centre sister recommends that um, Ali be seen regularly by a mental health nurse uh, because, of course, they live in the country and there aren't um, psychiatric services nearby. So Miriam accepts that perhaps Ali is struggling. A quote from the book, and this is Ali telling her mother, my marriage is not the problem. I'm the problem. I just need to get well. Nick is bewildered, of course. I'm not the woman he married. You see, I'm this sad sack of misery, but I'm determined to get back to my old self. And Nick's helping. He really is. Well, Miriam is invited to stay down there while Nick's at a conference and she's aware of the security around the house. But she does meet Jeremy, 
Ali's only friend in Dungog. And mm. as you said, Jeremy didn't think much of Nick, but Jeremy is a natural with baby Ted and explains his own family circumstance. Ali reminds me of my mother and Nick reminds me of my father. And perhaps that's why I don't like him because I'm the eldest of nine children and um, I'm, you know, very Catholic family. And, um, of course, I've, I'm gay and so that's a problem. My father, I, you know, he basically threw me out. But he said, you know, my father sucked the life out of my mother. He basically, I watched her get disappear, become a shadow of herself. He said, you know, she got to the point where if we're watching television and she wanted to laugh, she'd put her hand over her mouth and laugh behind her hand because if dad saw her or heard her laugh, he would get really angry with her. And he- I thought you described it very well with, I've always thought of my dad as a, as a bit of a vampire. He sucked the life out of my mother. Well, him and all us kids, but we couldn't help it and he could. The more exhausted and faded she got, the bigger and more robust he became, as if he was feeding off her life force or something. So by the end of part one, Ali has run away from home with the children and uh, who tells Miriam that she's coming? The mental health nurse, who turns out to have been a real ally, of course is trained and recognises that Ali is not mentally ill but abused. Confidentiality being what it is, she can't actually tell anyone or do anything unless until she gets permission. And she finally does when Nick crosses a very major line, which we all know is a red flag in domestic abuse, which is, of course, to choke. The way he gaslights and undermines and lies about what's going on and absolutely um, destroys Ali's sense of what's real and what's unreal when she relates to her mother that he strangled her until she lost consciousness. And then when she wakes up and asks him why he did that, he says, did what? You've just been asleep. Maybe you had a dream. And so that is the point at which she realises that she has to leave because she and the children are in danger. And then, As you said, he was, he was very manipulative and some of the intimidation that he did and the power plays he, he made that were just scarily horrible but sort of seemed like nothing could be proven or whatever. Miriam's best friend's dog is euthanised at the vet but it's done by a locum who she wasn't really happy about. Who was the locum vet that killed her dog? Nick. (laughs) Because he follows Ali and the kids to Sydney and he gets vet work in the nearest vet clinic. So he's able to threaten them by proxy, by killing the best friend's animal. It is a kind of um, Munchausen's by proxy via veterinary services. He could make a good case for that dog needing to be euthanized. So no one can do anything, but the threat is so huge to Miriam and Ali and the children. Well, Miriam's not only angry at the death of her husband and the threat to her daughter and grandchildren, but she's no longer frightened. We learn in the prologue that Miriam went into a shop she had never thought she would enter. What did you have Miriam buy? She buys a gun. She buys a Smith & Wesson 9mm and she buys it 
as a way of taking back some power of not feeling like a deer in the headlights, just waiting for whatever it is that Nick has planned for them, that she doesn't want to be powerless anymore and she has tried all the usual avenues and what she's learned is that a determined predator is very, very difficult to turn away and they can be exceedingly clever at working the law so that they can remain a constant, terrifying threat and therefore control the emotions, the movements and everything that their ex-partner and children um, are doing. And, of course, that means Nick controls Miriam as well. And I think the gun is a way of taking back some of that control. I'm going to let Miriam have the last feel the last words and of course it's Jane Caro's book The Mother and suddenly Miriam was no longer frightened she was angry as angry as she could ever remember being in her life her veins and arteries felt as if they were filled with molten lava and that any minute now like a volcano she would explode would she just sit and wait while her ex-son-in-law threatened the lives of three people whom she held most dear? No, she would not. If no one else could stop him, she would. These things are so much part of our headlines, our daily news. And I think that in a way like Miriam, I was just getting angrier and angrier. And instead of buying a gun, I decided to write a book. In The Mother, Jane Caro has written a story about the difficult and sensitive area of coercive control, how a relationship can become toxic and what a mother will do to protect the family she loves. Thank you so much, Jane. My pleasure, Jane. It was a lovely interview. I really enjoyed it. And now it's David's turn. There is something endearingly honest and humorous about Tony Jordan's latest novel, Dinner with the Schnabels. At the same time, and I can say this as a man of mature years, pathetically realistic about the central character, Simon Larson. So, Tony, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. It's lovely to be back. Things haven't really gone according to plan for Simon. Where does he find himself? Oh, poor Simon. I mean, um, I had a unique kind of opportunity with this book, David, because I, I kind of thought, um, because I was obviously inside, <laughs> as we all were over the last couple of years, I thought if I was careful, I might be able to capture kind of a, a moment, a, an actual moment that we were all feeling. So Simon is kind of like us right now. He's had a very hard couple of years. He's lost his business um, during the lockdown. He's lost the family home. Um, so he and his wife, Tansy, and their two children um, are renting a tiny flat and have squeezed in there. Um, he's unemployed. He's uh, on the couch. He's, he's kind of lost his sense of self, I guess. He has a job. He's been given a, the task of landscaping a friend's backyard for a memorial service. And this is apparent in the structure of the book. He's got to finish it by Saturday and the book starts on Monday. And things don't go according to plan here as well. 
No, this was actually a technical problem for me. You know, I know I, a lot of writers listen um, listen in. So, like, it was a technical problem because I'd already decided, um, to me, I, I wanted something warm. I wanted the book to be warm. I wanted it to be good people doing the wrong things for the right reasons and generally getting everything wrong but having basically good instincts. So that meant kind of low stakes like this isn't you know chasing a serial killer David you know there's no you know bodies or anything like that so my problem was how can I make um, a, a gripping kind of narrative plot out of a guy whose job it is to do a garden like <laughs> so that's why I, I kind of thought if I set it over a week I have a really kind of ticking clock kind of arrangement and, and kind of increase the pressure on him. So that's the plan. He's got one week to do a job. Things keep getting worse. He just, everything goes wrong. Things keep getting in the way. And I want to touch on some of those. One of them is actually a job interview, but it doesn't necessarily go according to plan. And it also places him in a world he doesn't understand. So during the course of this interview for an architectural firm. Emerging technology is the way we infuse our practice with an experiential aspect, Milo said. VR, mobile responsive 3D, they've been game changers for us. And design-wise, cutting the time between some Pantone color popping up in an influencer's feed to seeing it everywhere is crucial. Our projects look like now, like yesterday, fresh. That's what we're after, though we style it as fresh. Fresh, said Simon. It sounded like Milo had spontaneously developed a Kiwi accent. He doesn't understand the language of the day. He, he doesn't. He doesn't. It's And, you know, that's a problem for all of us, I think. I make an enormous effort to keep up. But the fact is the world is changing faster than we can get our get to grips with it so even you know when we're used to feeling in command of the situation there's all this stuff we don't know and there's all this stuff that younger smarter um, more in touch people know and it's a slightly discombobulating I think but to add to the indignity it's one of his it's one of his former employees who he's trained <laughs> who is in charge of the interview it, it's a it, it's challenging to his sense of uh, self worth. I think that's what what is going on here. Let's add to this because his wife's half sister Monica has come down for a memorial service, and we'll get into that a little later. But she ends up living with them in this crowded flat. But Simon doesn't actually understand how Monica makes a living. It's a whole other world. There's a whole lot of things that, that Simon doesn't understand. And, you know, this is something that I really love doing in fiction. I've done it in a couple of other books. And to me, it's a joyous thing where I can describe things accurately. So I'm being completely accurate. There's no fibs. Um, and Simon is explaining things as he sees them. But the reader is knowing better than Simon is. So on a number of times Simon goes, oh, well, this is what's happening. And I, I'm hoping that the reader is two steps ahead of Simon and is going, no, Simon, mate, that's not what's happening. So it's, that's something I really enjoy. Monica is a social influencer, so she can sit around on the couch and make money. And Simon's out of work. He doesn't understand this. Let's add another dimension here. And... <laughs> 
dare I say it, your understanding of the male ego and his <laughs> sexual identity is disturbingly accurate. <laughs> I'm very complimented. <laughs> well, well, you know, if any of us don't feel confident and secure in themselves, it's hard to be in a vulnerable enough space to make love with somebody even if it's a long-term partner you kind of feel you know you're not exactly uh, <laughs> there may or may not be personal experience here asking for a friend in brackets but there's a kind of you know if you don't feel quite yourself if you feel lacking in confidence it's hard to to I mean you know it's all right in Bridgerton you know they've got the beautiful frocks and the dancing you know it's a lot it's kind of easy to be hot we're in a normal house in a normal suburb with your partner that you've been with for like a decade it's harder but his fantasy uh that you mention is bushwalking a naked lady steps out from behind a tree <laughs> well hang on a minute is that likely to happen and the practicalities of them taking advantage <laughs> of the situation which seem to be somewhat unrealistic but again that divide between where the male headspace is and the reality. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a healthy imagination. That's Absolutely. what I say. He also has two young children, Mia and Lachlan, and they've had to change schools. And poor Simon has to then retrieve his daughter from school because she has been misbehaving, is it, or being enterprising? Yes. Yes, well, it's a fine line, isn't it? Um, I can relate to Mia in this circumstances because it, if there was one character in this book that that is me, it's Mia. It's the over-earnest, you know, eight going on 52-year-old child. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's just another level of stress for Simon. So he's got to do the garden. He's got an unexpected house guest. He's got this job offer that he perceives as maybe it's insulting or else maybe it's fantastic he can't kind of quite decide but he doesn't understand it anyway um he's got you know small domestic things like the fridge breaks it, this is the amazing thing about the human brain right we have to deal with the existential dread of our own demise at the same time we have to deal with the broken fridge and somehow <laughs> processing both these things they almost have equal weight in our in our day-to-day -day lives because you know our our own existential demise is a while off but they have to deal with the fridge now there's also the disturbing prospect of his wife tansy thinking about a divorce and indeed that's where the novel opens and added to that there's a layer of suspicion about infidelity so there's a, a slightly darker shade coming in here the, that existential threat again of things falling apart I, I like that mix of um of dark and light uh I think that um you know you do read novels that are just happy and I mean I love a comedy as much as the next person just completely happy books and you also of course we specialize in this in Australia, uh, books that are extremely dire um, with a very, <laughs> a very pessimistic and po-faced kind of worldview. We, we do have both those extremes when, of course, in reality, life is neither of those extremes. Life is a mix of the happy and the sad. 
and the, you know, the joyful and the absolutely uh, horrifying and finding some way to blend those things is to me the way to make a story more truthful because life is actually a blend of those things. We also have the mother-in-law, Gloria. He's slightly worried about her. There's Kylie and Nick. These are Tansy's brother and sister who are successful. So in some ways, Simon's competing slightly. Can things get much worse for Simon, do you think? <laughs> yeah, so the week kind of goes downhill and, and I, I've tried to make the... the the question, will he get the garden done on time to be kind of the driving force of, of, um, of the novel. And, you know, a couple of, of my friends who've read it already are, are saying, you know, they're like, where's the pavers? Like, what, what is he doing? You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's quite, you know, it's a technique. It is a technical challenge to make a novel with very low stakes um, still have kind of a bit of drive toward the end and, and hopefully an ending that, that is not um, so obvious. Well, this is what I was wondering at this stage. Where, which way would it go in terms of dark or light? What could happen? Because for the male ego and the light, things can fall apart um, and it doesn't go well for quite a number of people in this regard. So it's... Absolutely. These are very realistic concerns when they all start. They're small, they're minor, the fridge, but they can overwhelm you when they collapse upon each other. There is a sort of social networking at the end that comes to the fore. I don't think we need to say any more than that. <laughs> that is the resolution at the end. But in order for the reader to find out what, in fact, does happen, and how uh, Simon uh, comes out at the other end, you're actually going to have to read Tony Jordan's <laughs> Dinner with the Schnabels, and it's a Hachette release. So, Tony, thank you very much for talking with me today. It's always a pleasure, David. Thank you for having me on. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.